Hey, everybody. This is Tuna Talk. <laughs> the name changes each week. I've been sitting on that for a little while. Like, I think that's a bit that we could do. Tuna, Tuna talk? talk with fish friends. From uh, Gloucester to Kyoto. For all the, all all the, the salty dogs. <laughs> As our numerous fans know and love, we like to now do shared experience weekends. So where one of us recommends something that none of us have really done actively before, but is in their bailiwick. And we all try it and see what we think. Uh, BJ, this time around, you had a bit of a recommendation for us. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I recommended some, some tuna fish. So uh, the ideology of this is um, when uh, lockdown first occurred, South Korea sent little care packages out to like all of its restaurants, uh, not restaurants, all of its uh, residents. And we're basically... It's like, hey, we understand that we're asking you to be indoors for a couple of weeks. Here's like some food and, and other like necessary things for you to live and not go outside. And in this was uh, a very uh, unique tuna can um, that I had gotten before, um, which I thought was very, you know, a surprisingly good thing. And um, as I remember, Levi was just like, why is this a specific thing in South Korea? Like, you know, how is any tuna better than any other tuna? Like, this is just silly. Like what's going on? Um, to which I replied by sending him some tuna fish. And uh, so from there, I figured that that would be sort of an entertaining thing. At some point, I think I, I also dropped some off to uh, Terry for from uh, a Costco run that I had. And then sent some out to Spencer, who I confirmed the amount that I was sending before I sent it, given some um, historical deliveries that Spencer's been increasingly frustrated about. You sent a perfectly reasonable amount of four cans rather than the 40 I was expecting when you told me this was coming. I think we're all a little gun shy about sending this stuff now, Spencer, because you, you I mean, you, I think you've reached a sort of a breaking point. Like you've talked about like the, like the sort of death in the eyes of your, of your, your girlfriend when the packages come in and like, you know, you now needing to get like extra storage space. Like, I think we've reached critical mass on this and Spencer, a bunch of we, crap. We, we, re we reached a kind of point of where I was getting enough items. I was actually using them as like, you know, building blocks to then put things on. Like I, I, I had like a temporary table that was just directed on the boxes of things that you guys were sending me just because I had so many that were piling up around the house. So Spencer, I, I'm you, so different now. Like I sent you tea and I wrote rooibos tea, but like I tried to get a small package and then you told me it was a big package. And then I felt shame. I was like, oh, <laughs> I contributed to this. Uh, Biji, I'm curious about this. Uh, I mean, this is advertised as kind of like a spicy tuna mixture. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm curious, is this in the category of, you know, foreign import items that you could get at your regular grocery store? Or do you have to go search this out? Do you have to go to a specialty kind of place to find this? Uh so, I mean, I've gotten it at Costco, but Costco does have like other things that are kind of unique. I don't think I've ever seen it in a regular grocery store, but asking me about going to my regular grocery store and finding weird stuff is also a little weird because like the amount that I would, at least previously now a little bit less so, but would shop at like Asian grocery stores over normal American grocery stores is pretty high. So, um, I would say pretty much any Asian grocery store has it. Okay. I can um, tell you, I've looked at for it at Fresh Market, Whole Foods, Harris Teeter, and Food Line, and none of them had it. Well, I have not tried it yet. I actually have a, a freshly made sandwich here that I'm going to try it here for y'all. But I'm curious for the two of you that have, Levi, Lee, what did you think? What, what should I think going into this? Well, I'll tell you my story with it. BJ brought it over and I thought, oh, okay. He brought me tuna. So I just put it in the pantry and I forgot about it. And um, then I was like really hungry one night and found it in my pantry, pulled it out. I think Sarah may have had to remind me that BJ had given it to me and I ate it. And I had the thought, like I had the thought, just stop underestimating BJ. Like when BJ brings you something or recommends something like try it immediately. Cause it's, this is like, I thought it was extremely good. And like, I had a, like a series of very like, super like hyper text messages to PG. I was like, this shit is awesome. It's so good. I just ate it straight. I didn't eat it up. I just ate it straight out of the can with a fork. And I thought it was great. That was really good. Yeah. So, so in terms of my experiences, so sort of similar to Terry's and in, in some, some regards and different others. Um, so this was, was, was shipped to me um, 
DJ didn't give me a heads up that there's any package coming. So I just sort of got a thing of tuna. Um, and I think like we were going to, we were going somewhere. Um, I, I don't remember this because it's been, been many months. Um, I think it was back in the late summer. Is that, is that possible, BJ? Very possible. I, it, this um, was like, I think relatively early into lockdown that I sent it to you because we were talking about like this news story that had come out. Yeah, but I'd forgotten about the news story. So I, I had no context. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> like, I think we were like going on like a road trip. It may have been us, uh, us going to, to New Hampshire and Vermont um, and like go downstairs and there's a package. Okay. Um, let me open it. There's this roll of, 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 of tuna fish from, from presumably from BJ. And it's like, okay, cool. Um, put it aside. I tried some initially. Um, and I liked it quite, quite a bit. Um, I thought it was, thought, thought it was really good. Um, now the, the onion carrot sort of add on inside of the tuna fish is not my favorite. It, it gets, it's, it, it's a little soggy, but you know, from mm-hmm. a, from a, from a pure tuna fish spice standpoint, it's fantastic. Um, but I, I also put it in my pantry and sort of forgot about it. I, I knew it was there, but like tuna fish is one of those things that like you have to just sort of think about it and like be in a mood for it. You, you don't just yeah. sort of stumble on it and say, Hey, you know, what am I going to have for lunch? Oh, let me, let me have some tuna fish. Right. That's that, that's not common for me. Um, maybe a little more common for you, Terry. Um, but for my preparation uh, for, for this podcast, I made, I made a, a sort of bougie uh, tuna melt, like, made proper, proper tuna salad, chopped a bunch of veggies, a lot of celery, a lot of like, uh, uh, dill pickles, onions, mayonnaise, parsley, put it all together. Got some, got some nice sourdough bread, put it into the oven to, to, to bake it. And like basically it's spicy, um, spicy tuna salad. And it was absolutely fantastic. Um, it's, it's a really good look. Now the can is super weird. Like it's a little sketch. Mm. Um, <laughs> Can is kind of weird. I'll agree with that. It, you know, it, the, 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 you're supposed to store it upside down, basically, which I, I, I guess makes some internal sense to someone. And I guess, you know, what is the right way up is probably an arbitrary cultural artifact, but it weirds me out every time I look at it. Strange, strange can for sure. It opens from the bottom, I think. I was going to say, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like a dust collection thing where, so you don't want like dust collecting or whatever it is on the, the part that you open. So you, Stored upside down. It makes sense. That makes sense. That sounds Spencer, like. Have it. you tried it? No, this, this is the first time right here. What kind of bread do you have there? Uh, this is a toasted croissant. Okay. Ooh. Interesting. And it's just tuna. Mm-hmm. Do you have what else do you have on the sandwich? I put some onions. I put some uh, some quartered cherry tomatoes, and I put a couple chopped uh, banana peppers. All right. Ooh. Well, let's get no, into it. No sauce, nothing, just the tuna with the chili I, sauce. I was advised not to add any extra sauce, so figured I would just go as is with the different ingredients. This All is right, essentially just a regular tuna sandwich for me, but using the sauce that came in rather than uh, mayonnaise. All right, here we go. All right. Now, while he tries that, Spencer, we saw him eating earlier, and he put a bib on. Um, it does not appear there's any bib here, so he's uh, probably I, not worried about chili chili drip off. Yep. Leaning over the plate. Ah, he's <laughs> doing the doing the the gaffietti. Uh, or the thing called being an adult and and <laughs> trying to catch your own crumbs, <laughs> rather than having one of those bibs with the, like the catch thing for like you know toddlers to to have snacks later or whatever it is. You know why she got that gun? Diners, drive-ins, and dogs. Gaffey always does that thing. Yeah, he, like, leans over. Mm-hmm. It's like it's big. He, he makes a joke like every single episode. I mean, my presumption is he's also having like a lot of burgers and whatever and stuff like regularly. Oh, for sure, falls like out, those big, so, yeah, yeah, those big like kitchen sink burgers. Yeah, Spencer, your take. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Wow, I, I thought mean, it was really good. It's got it's got a good enough flavor. It, it's a, I guess it's, I'm also surprised it's come, it's come across as a little dry. Maybe. Um, I would have advised a sauce on it. Or some me kind too. Of that. Um, but, but my my thing though, the Spencer is like when you're given this when you're given this uh, giving your take on it. Remember, it's like tuna from a can. Right, like so. Let's like let's not set like too high of expectations on it. <laughs> I, I'm not expecting this to be restaurant quality in terms of what I'm getting, but it has a good flavor. Has a nice little bit of chili kick to it. I would. I'm excited to try this now with other things. It seems like it's going to serve as a good base for, for, for several different things, just in terms of what it has to work with. As a thing unto itself, it's fine. It's 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 a it's a fun way. It's a fun new way to do tuna. But I think it's going to be. Um, a nice ingredient to then mix with other things from here. So yeah, BJ, I approve. This is this is enjoyable. BJ, if I, people want this to know where, like, could they get on Amazon? And yeah, you so can get it on Amazon. Search? Yep. Where do they search? Like uh, Billy Tuna. 
I, I think you can search for Korean tuna, but uh, the company I believe is Dongwon, D-O-N-G-W-O-N. Tuna. I would say I appreciate y'all's warning that it might be a bit spicy for Bridget, but this is okay. This is the category of spice of where it's not really spicy. It just has a little bit of extra heat. So this is this doesn't come across to me as too bad. Yep. Dongwon <laughs> tuna can. You can get it on Amazon. Um, so Spencer, in light of that comment, I'm going to be completely honest. I'm so so confused by what counts as spicy to bring. I am too. Uh, I'm flummoxed. Yeah. I thought it, you said that ketchup was spicy. And I yeah. said that's fine. That's mocking. That, that is me making fun of her. No, um, we took that for real. We've been we've been operating for like you, years. That that was you guys serious. take a lot of things I say as real that you really shouldn't take as real. <laughs> no, fair enough. Uh, but no, I mean, it, as, as I said, pretty much every every meal that you guys have sent has had something that set off her spice radar, but. Not, not, not always like just necessarily a main dish, like uh, Levi, the kimchi that you sent. That, that's, that set her off a little bit. Uh, B, B, uh, BJ and Lee, some of the sauces that you guys had for like the dipping of the various things, those were too mm-hmm. spicy for them. So it, it's just something we have to be always careful with. This one, I think she, this one, I think she could enjoy. So speaking of uh, spicy sauces, I was frustrated with myself for a surprisingly long period of time. Um, on I uh, visited my parents for Passover and on the way up we got some uh takeout from an Indian place that had onion chutney and I like I meant to get it <laughs> and I forgot when I was putting my order in and I was so pissed at myself like for like a couple hours afterwards that like I we didn't actually get the onion chutney Levi's fist pumping in the background. Uh, we told a story probably on a previous pod where Levi loves the onion chutney. Do you, didn't you start start like repl- replacing like regular condiments with the onion chutney? Like fuck the mayonnaise, fuck the sriracha. hundred percent. And like on things that don't necessarily, whether they need it or not. I mean, some people like hot sauce and, and spicy things on, on everything, but it's like, so, so it's an, an absurd thing that like on the weekends, my girlfriend will like we'll, we'll take turns one on a Saturday, one on a Sunday, making making breakfast, and we'll commonly have eggs, some toast, maybe some cheese on top of the eggs, pancakes. bacon, sausage. No, 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 we're not really a pancake house. <laughs> Good eye um, for your pancakes. So. Um, but anyway, but like pancakes. after we have onion chutney, like I always invariably when she'll make the 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 egg sandwich or the the eggs and toast, and I'll just like look at them and like be a little sad and just like sadly look at the eggs. And then she like, takes a second and then realizes, oh, okay, I'll get the onion chutney. Like it, I put it on everything. Um, like it's, I put it on sandwiches. I put it on everything. It's the best stuff ever. Um, like screw white people. Like I'm, 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 I'm all for India right now. Like number one. That's a fun I question. firsthand saw you fall in love with the condiment because I saw you when you when you got on the sriracha kick and I mean, my man was putting sriracha on every bite. Like he, his sandwich had sriracha on it, and then there was sriracha on the bite. Boom, bite, boom. Ahead, I will say that is the way that I will often eat burritos. With it's hard, it's hard to properly spice those things, BJ. Absolutely, I think that's a good call on burritos for sure. Yeah, because you're not gonna you don't get this. You don't no matter what you, how you do it, you're not gonna get like the same amount of sauce on everybody. Yeah. Question for me: We regularly cook for our partners in terms of preparing everything. It can be hard to prepare things too differently for several different people. Is there a condiment or a spice that you regularly like and regularly like to add to your dishes that your partner can't tolerate? You have to remember not to include it in theirs. I mean, you question. mentioned onion chutney is one that she does not, that Sam does not enjoy. What a relatable conversation. So um, one, uh, she enjoys onion chutney. She finds it absurd, the lengths that I, I enjoy it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Relative difference in comparison. Okay. She has a, a moderate uh, gene, uh, whereas I, if I fall in love with something, I'm going to keep using it everywhere uh, to the nth degree. Um, but no, I mean, largely we're, we're, we have the same taste, um, at least in terms of sauces. When it, I'm actually the, 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 the picky one when it comes to like other things. So there's like certain vegetables that I just don't like. Um, and I don't tell her necessarily. Like, what? like what's an example of a vegetable you like? Water chestnuts. They suck. Um, mushrooms. They're terrible. Um, Whoa. Tell me out hot. So, so have you only had canned water chestnuts? I don't know, BJ. Like, I, I, the I, answer I, is yes, BJ. But he doesn't. Problem. He doesn't want to get into a, a discussion about it. That's true. I, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be completely honest here, BJ. It's it, it, it's very possible that I have. I've had it. You know, as is prepared in meals by restaurants, which yeah. they probably presumably get it from the can. Yeah, um, definitely. But like, I'm gonna be honest. As a person who 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 feels the way I feel. I resent the fact that you guys are just like, oh, you've not had the, the good water chestnut. And it's like, no, no, they're actually just not good. 
Like well, I'm sorry. I tried that with what did I try that with you, Levi? Was it a peach? There was something. It was that me I tried. with pears. I don't know me about with Levi. pears. Somebody with a peach. I've tried that with a, all you guys before, where I'm like, no, no, the real, the real one, and you always like are like, stop doing that. Well, it's like, it's fine not to like something um, and to say, I, I don't prefer it. And then like a really good preparation of it. Like I, I've had mushrooms prepared in such a way that they're delicious, but like you salt ham and a boatload of butter. At that point, you're just eating butter. Like it's, it's not the mushroom that's actually accomplishing much there. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to stick up for the people out there who go, well, wait a second. You have that had the good one because here's why it's so hard. Cause like I g- generally like 98% of the time, you and I are like linked on what's good food. And like, when you throw out something like, I don't like mushrooms, it's so bizarre to me that I think that, that like, can't be, he, he can't mean that. Like that's so, so I, then I just start the Rolodex of, well, wait, wait a second. Hold on. Is he had like a portobello grilled on a sandwich? Like I, I start going all crazy. Um, and, and look, I mean, the answer is that, yeah, like a, a, a very delicate high-end preparation of a lot of these things that most people don't like, people will, people will enjoy. Right. When we say we don't like, we mean like the base model, right? Like saying, I don't like hamburgers. And then you, you give them like Kobe beef that's been like, like uh, aged and like seared in a certain way. Yeah. That's, that's going to be probably tasty. Um, but like, they're talking about going to the freaking grocery store and buying a, buying a blob of it. Um, and that's, that's fair. Well, the yeah. hope is that then that becomes your gateway, right? Like that you you try the best version of it and you're like, that's pretty good. And then we start like notching you down. And then eventually you're like, you know what? This isn't so bad. I've done that recently with salmon where like I've for years said, I don't like salmon. Really? Yeah. And I got, when, I wish uh, this year I've been on like a pretty strict diet. So I can't tell if it's like, I've just figured out how to eat salmon or I'm just hungry all the time. It's probably one of the, one or the other, but either way, I started getting really, really nice salmon that I would marinate in things that I knew I really liked. Well, I mean, obviously the argument there is, well, you just like the marinade. Fair, fair enough. But that became my introduction to eating salmon. Then I figured out I like grilled salmon better than baked salmon. And I started notching it down. And now I'm eating salmon all the time and I don't need like a bunch of marinade on it. And I like it. So that was been like my introduction to get me to like this thing that I didn't. So like when when you say I don't like mushrooms and I'm like, well, try morels. That's the, that's the thing I'm trying to get you to do. Can I just like hot take central? Um, salmon is the tomato of the fish world in terms of like fresh versus like standard crap you mm. get in the store. Mm. There's Mother. such a difference that's there. Great. <laughs> that's great. I didn't know where so, you're going with that, but now I, I understand. It's very good. <laughs> I think that there are so many fish that, that felt like, I think fish in general is kind of there. Um, I would say tuna has sort of like the the biggest like like canned tuna for the most part is the like tomatoes that you get in a store off season that are like vaguely acceptable but you can't just eat them i mean you can but it's sad i guess whereas like there's tuna that is like off the wall delicious i think that i think that that's almost like objectively true right that the biggest variability and quality of fish comes from like tuna like i mean but i'd say salmon is maybe like number two because like if you get like farm raised like light pink like sell it and slabs at your local harris teeter and you just bake that sucker you're eating no no flavor but like like really good like sockeye salmon or something that you've smoked or whatever i mean it can be like almost a different different taste altogether I don't know if you guys remember this, but so um, uh, for um, Dustin's bachelor party uh, in Las Vegas, we went to a Brazilian steakhouse and that was the place where I discovered this, this tomato salmon theory uh, because they had some salmon there that was just so fresh and so sort of like sort of earthy, fatty, but like delicious. Almost sweet. Yeah, it was just a, a, a different thing that I'd ever had in terms of salmon because, I mean, we're, we're all raised on the East Coast, right? I mean, salmon is not, not a natural fish to that area. So you have to sort of go out of your way to get good salmon there or you, to Terry's point, you get the sort of farm raised, whatever uh, salmon. I remember having it and being like, oh, this is like another thing. This is like a different fish entirely. This is not even the same thing. Um, and I was blown away. See, this is why I, I like that take. I think it's it's bright. Is that I did that like so that process I just outlined for you guys about how I've introduced salmon into my diet. Mm-hmm. 
like 20 years ago, I did the exact same thing with tomatoes where I decided, you know what? I'm too many people eat tomatoes. It's on too much shit. I'm not going to be the guy that like raises his hand and says, I don't like tomatoes. I, this is like well, maybe 14 years old. And I started with like really super nice heirloom tomatoes on a tomato sandwich with like white bread and mayonnaise and black pepper. Like who doesn't, who the fuck doesn't like that? And then started working my way down. Now I can just eat like a regular ass tomato on anything, but I had to do the same exact thing with tomatoes that I've recently done with salmon. Um, so correct take moral of the story. It's fun. You mentioned uh, mushrooms because I was right there with you with mushrooms, but I've basically been forced into a kind of Stockholm syndrome with respect to them because Bridget <laughs> adores the damn things. She loves mushrooms. She would add mushrooms to every meal in every way that she could. And so I have no choice, but to learn how to tolerate the damn things. EJ, right. I have a question for you. Yeah. When you hear people try to give general takes on mushrooms, are you a little uneasy because of the variability of mushrooms? Yeah. Because I am too. I, I'm kind of like, well, I don't know what you mean when you say I like mushrooms. I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize. Yeah. I'm just saying like, there's like, there's so much. When you say mushroom, I mean, that's, there's like hundreds of kinds. But but that's the I, other thing. It's like, I know exactly what people mean because it's white button mushrooms. Mm, I, Bridget likes varieties. I've had all kinds of varieties of mushrooms. She adores her shiitake. She tolerates her white button. I, we've, yeah. we've explored the whole rigmarole. I, I guess I'm not disagreeing with you at all, Spencer, but like when people say they don't like mushrooms, they're saying they don't like white button mushrooms Usually, and sometimes right? yeah. like big ass shi- like portobellas. My, one of my roommates in uh, law school, had her, her family had their own mushroom farm. And so she would regularly bring back bags of all kinds of varieties of mushrooms that we'd cook around the house. All, for, all, all freshly plucked from, from where they were growing. Presumably one of the better ways that you could do mushrooms. And I could taste differences. Didn't particularly like any of the, any of the variations that were occurring, no matter how you, how you cook them or prepare them. I'd like to give Spencer a lot of credit here for something. He said, we don't like mushrooms. I questioned it and said, well, there's a lot of variability of mushrooms. Spencer came in with a hammer and said, I know a motherfucker with a mushroom farm. <laughs> that was pretty strong, Spencer. Yes. <laughs> for you. Uh, but they're, for me, they're the classic example of a food that you, they will absorb the flavor of what they're in and that's fine. And they can, you know, represent a good tasting dish, but I don't see them adding much independently, at least not from what I've exposed before, but Bridget adores them. We've, I've learned to add them to all kinds of dishes that I cook and I've found ways to tolerate them, but that's not really enjoying that is Stockholm syndrome, essentially. Yeah. So giving, giving credence to that theory that like, well, it just takes on the foot. So like morels are like the, the big thing, right? Like they're super expensive mushrooms that are like hard to get, but like I've got morels before and then like looked online or talked to people who've had them and they say garlic and butter. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Like what these things, garlic and butter, like they're, they're that rare and that's how I'm flavoring it. So the, the other thing that I would say is um, a lot of times there are foods that people really dislike the texture or something else about it. And so like, um, so one of the two things that I like perfectly well, because pretty much if it's a vegetable or fruit, I like it other than pears, um, is celery and broccoli. So celery because of the strings, broccoli because of something I I haven't pinned down why she doesn't like broccoli, but I think it has something to do with growing up with a lot of boiled broccoli and also something about the uh, flower, the end bits of the florist, like the flowers. So that, I mean, it's just like, it's not that big of a deal to cut those out. Other than uh, we recently started participating with the CSA and uh, we just got a celery bunch that's the size of a toddler. And so I'm not really sure what to do about it, given that uh, Brie dislikes celery. Yeah, like, I feel like when people say I don't like X food, like 18 to 20% of of people who say that, it's somehow we can blame boiling. Because boiling is a shitty preparation of pretty much anything. And like, so many people say I don't like X and you're like, well, why? And then you dig into it and you're like, well, my mom boiled it when I was a kid. Right. I don't like it. And I, I was, I was going to, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Cause I meant to talk about this earlier, which is like, I feel like we're getting to be sort of the last generation where that's common. I mean, that definitely still happens. I'm sure. But like, I think that the default 
you just get a vegetable, you boil it and you slap it on a plate is becoming a lot less common. And maybe that's sort of just my Quit, like, question. How, about, yeah. When you guys say boiling, do you separate that from steaming? Yes. Yes. Just slightly, sure. it's very different. Yeah. Slightly because I think that overcooking with boiling and steaming have a fairly similar end product. They're not quite the same, uh, but a lot of, um, I'm going to say a word and then apologize it and try and explain it. Cruciferous uh, vegetables become bitter. So like broccoli and Brussels sprouts and uh, cauliflower, things like that. Those vegetables, like if you boil them or steam them, they become more bitter and I think kind of unpleasant. I think the main difference is like how much flavor they lose uh, to the water. So like when you steam, you don't lose a lot of that flavor, but it still becomes bitter and intense. But with boiling, you're often losing a lot of flavor to the water. Let's put it this way. Um, boiling, you're guaranteed to fuck it up. Steaming, you probably won't fuck it up, but you could. Mm-hmm. is is the answer because like yeah. boiling there's, there's there's no upside zero upside the only thing you boil are are, are eggs right hard-boiled eggs is about the only thing you could properly boil and make sense sometimes, um, you boil, sometimes you boil uh poultry if you want if you're going to use the yeah, stock, stock. So, like so, but potatoes and beets and you know sometimes things like like you know sweet potato yams like stuff like that there are reasons to do it especially uh, but, I, 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 true, but it's not sure. necessarily a better individual yeah. preparation. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I'll call it out. I mean, I, at least for me, like you boil potatoes to, to fluffing them up so you can put them on, put them on and bake them and make them delicious. Like yeah. it, it's, it's a means to an end, not the end itself. Um, right. but, um sure. Yes. I agree. That's pretty, it's pretty spot on BJ is that like boiling as a, as a primary way of cooking food, has basically been bred out. I mean, in Britain, it may be still be a, a big thing, but at least in the Americas, we've we've finally gotten rid of the last vestige of our colonial history and said, you know what? You guys make shitty food and it's time for us to reckon with this and realize that we need to do better. They boil a lot of shit in Africa. It's a simple preparation tactic. It, yeah, it, it's easy. It's easy, it's bulk. Uh, it's terrible usually. But, but I was going to say- Sit it and forget it. You, but they do a lot of stews, which I think is like another- you essentially boil vegetables and stuff like that, but and you add spices and reconstitute and them and put them all right. back in. Yeah. Yeah. Cause this is one of the reasons I was going to ask about it is because I, I love stews and stews are basically just boiling. You're just boiling it in something tasty. Yeah. But, but you're not leaching out the flavor. Cause a lot of times when you would boil vegetables, you'd get rid of the, the, the liquid. Right. Yeah. And so, so that's, that's the part of, I've never understood, right? The boiling. And then, then you get rid of the thing, like the product of the boiling. A lot of times is the liquid and people just like toss it. Like it, like, yeah. like you make a pasta or something. You're like, no, that's not, you're going to, you need to use that for something. So, even if it's just, even it's just later for like risotto or something. Yeah, cause I'll boil things all the time. We make soup. We're just boiling it in chicken stock that we then eat along with yeah. the vegetables. All right. And it's delicious. Um, so, so that's where I think, like, I wonder if we're getting to be the last generation that deals with a lot of things like that. Like, you know, there, there was the end of jellos. Um, and <laughs> yeah, RIP. Um, I, I mean, I think that there are, are some losses there. Um, I mean, I, for one, like, it'll come back. They all come but, back. Uh, eh, maybe. So. Uh, EJ, I um that was since we're on food and, and Spencer brought up soup. I have started making um so let me let me give you my recipe for matzo ball soup and let me tell you if I and you tell me if I make it okay. Okay. Yep. All right. So what I do is I will make chicken stock and I usually try to make as um flavorful as chicken stock as possible, meaning the ratio of water to the thing up like the chicken carcass or whatever is lower than I would normally do for stock. Right. I try to like where I normally make two quarts, I try to make a quart. Like, so I want it to be really super flavorful. Then I use that stock. I cook the chicken, roast the chicken separately. I don't use the same stuff. I make the stock in, pull the chicken. I individually add the pulled chicken into the stock. I individually roast carrots and onions and then add that in. I don't cook it in the stock. And then I add in matzo balls. So what I'm doing is I make the stock and then I just kind of separately cook everything and put it all in. Is that acceptable or is that a, some sort of egregious representation of matzo balls? I mean, I would say it's acceptable. The, I think the thing that is um, sort of part and parcel to like what 
a lot of these dishes end up being is like, it's like poor food. So, so like, I think, like, I think that's an, uh, like a modernization of what that food is, but like, it's a high end uh, preparation of what, what is fundamentally supposed to be a very yeah. simple and basic and cheap dish. Right. right. Like, you know, calories on the chief. Right. And so, um, yeah. like the, uh, I mean, the preparations that I've usually had are just like a fairly simple, you know, stock or consomme with matzo balls, like adding other stuff in, I think is a much more like American thing coming from like chicken noodle soup. Um, so usually yeah. like when I've oh, had it, like it, it wouldn't actually have chicken in it. Um, it would just mostly be again, you know, the consummate. Lots of ball and, and yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I, and I've, I've done that and a few times and I thought it was really good, but I, I, it is different than like matzo ball soup I've had, like at say at a restaurant or something. So, yeah. Um, that's a good, good point, BJ, the, the, the you sort of implicitly made there is just that like matzo ball soup is, is fundamentally a you know, poor food. Right. Um, which is like from the, from the sort of vein of like the South, it's like collard greens. Collard greens are, are poor people food. Um, they can be prepared in, in very delicious ways. And there's mm-hmm. been a lot of like new Southern takes of trying to up, upscale and make them fancier, make them better. But at its core, you're, up, you're, you're sort of upscaling something that is relatively supposed to be inexpensive and just like basic. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the exact dish basically is chicken dumplings. Pretty much, except the difference is in chicken and dumplings, you are expected to have chicken in it. So right. I, mean, I, I guess that might be a slight difference. BJ or Levi, it's interesting you brought up collard greens. So BJ is coming over for BJ and Brie are coming over for dinner tonight um, uh, to celebrate uh, Jesus and stuff. And um, I am making collard greens and I, I have like a bunch of different like recipes for collard greens. And of course, when BJ comes over, I'm always trying to like cook like for real, like I don't want to fuck it up. And I just, I just gave up yesterday and said, fuck this. I'm boiling these collard greens in water with a ham hock and that's how i like it so that's just how i'm doing it like that's I good stuff that's the way to that's do it, just it. Yeah. yeah that's doing it right so that's, that's how we're gonna have it gotta have some vinegar vinegar based something around there but uh, but otherwise yeah just a little apple cider vinegar yeah. when you're done yeah but yeah for sure that's because I, I i was pulling out all these recipes and like there's some where you like put cream in it and there's some where you like you're adding yeah, in vegetables I, I i feel like you know we're kind of in a world of where 19th century poor people food has kind of taken over the culinary scene of where like the things that rich people ate then kind of don't even like really exist anymore and factor in on the radar and the things that were viewed as poor people food then are now kind of the now kind of the mainstream like even the classic lobster example lobster was utter poor people trash food you're eating you're eating a friggin' insect now it's high dining because we've effectively eradicated the species that the rich people were eating during the same period so except for levi lobsters are trash I'm okay. actually right there with you with lobster. Um, oh my eh. gosh. I, I mean, I like most things. So the, the thing that I would say about poor people food <laughs> Me too. from 100, 150 years ago is that they're more likely eating in season and they're more like, and so instead of uh, getting things that are more likely out of season and hard to get hard to find, they're eating much closer to, you know, whatever it is that that's available. And so I think we've gone from things that are just expensive to things really needing to taste good. And so we're looking back to recipes that are taking, you know, whatever is in season and highlighting it rather than, you know, covering up something really sad. Uh, So a lot of French fruit is taking something that's kind of expensive in terms of meats that may or may not be great because you didn't have refrigeration and covering them up with expensive sauces. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of that can be good, but it ends up being expensive, there's kind a, of like pineapples. There's a YouTube channel, which I like, where it's a guy that goes through like old culinary traditions going back in the day. And he was comparing like, you know, 1200s AD in England. What would a peasant mm-hmm. eat? What would a knight eat? What would a noble eat? He ta- Who is yeah. this guy? I think I've watched it before. I'll have to double check. I don't remember the channel right I, now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to research it while you talk. I think I've watched the same dude. And if so, great, really- great channel, a lot of good information material. Put. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just one segment that he did. Um, but he talked about how the peasant food would be utter high dining now. It's fresh greens. It's all carefully prepared. It's not, it's not over spicing. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, it's a lot of very, very much modern great ingredients. It's very well done wheat bread. The more advanced you get now is viewed as utter trash kind of food because you were showing off. You go up to the nobles 
It's an excessive amount of meat that's overspiced as all shit. It's the whitest bread possible because effectively then the extra amount of processing and work was showing off that you were higher quality. And so it's a fun cultural comparison point about what would be viewed as low-class food now. It then is now very much viewed as fresh ingredients, well-prepared, uh, a mixed a mixed healthy plate in terms of the vitamins and minerals you're getting and everything else. Whereas the rich people food is straight up overspiced gout. Well, so I would I would couch that with I would I would guess that the the channel is doing something interesting and entertaining, but also my guess is that peasant food would be grain milled with you know whatever bugs have gotten into to the the grain and 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 so you know maybe it's even further in the future when we start adding like uh, insect protein to to all of our stuff because it's an available protein source, but like. He made no bones about that. It was prepared on authentic conditions that it had all kinds of extra stuff thrown in there. But, and that also this was a peasant eating during the season when the peasants had food. Right. This, that, that's the last point is yeah. that this, you know, there were ebbs, ebbs and flows. They ate this. Yeah. They, in the winter, they ate pickled, pickled meats and, or dried meats and, 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 and pickled foods and not a lot of it and sat around and did nothing to conserve calories. Yeah. Um, root sure. cellar. Like, a, you know, a lot of like root cellaring things. Um, and, you know, I, like, I don't know, depending on where they were, sometimes they like just toss things in straw and whatever else to try and keep it good, but they'd probably ate a lot of really questionable stuff. It's one, it's one of the myths he was trying to dismiss is that in a typical village that wasn't under conditions of wartime, peasants actually ate pretty well. It's more of a modern myth, the idea that they were constantly on the verge of starvation. Spencer, right. is, it, is the cooking channel Townsend's? No, I'll, I'll, I'll the one I've, I've checked out is called Townsend's T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D-S. Yeah. And it's gotten very popular. And the dude is like, he's really like seemingly very knowledgeable. He's like a, a pretty, pretty charismatic cat. And he like, but the thing, thing that kind of like takes you out a little bit is he dresses like a colonial when he does it. And you're like, that seems a little overboard, but <laughs> he will. And he'll cook like, like how they cook, like over like, you know, like charcoal and stuff or, or whatever. But like, uh, I've, I found it to be pretty good. It seems like it's gotten pretty popular too. Cause I started watching this guy like a couple of years ago and he had like a hundred thousand views and now his videos have like 3 million. So it seems like he's, he's send, send that around. I'd be curious to see him. Yeah. I would love to watch that as well. Um, also, uh, Spencer, I think you're being incredibly near right, but you're being very particular in the sense of like, of let me pick the era in which peasants weren't entirely fucked over in, in the medieval era. Well, um, they, they were fucked over in different ways. War was a constant, constant uh, uh, facet well, of their life. To um, be fair, I was saying England, which typically had a wonderful fa- habit of exporting their war to other countries and is a major stream of foreign policy throughout their entire history. Spencer's true. talking about the Tyrells and the Lannisters. He's <laughs> not mentioning in the reach. Dragonstone. Yeah. But um, returning to the point I was saying earlier, just as, a, as an example of just how different Brits and I can be about their tastes, I like cracked pepper. I like to add pepper to a lot of things. I think it adds a nice little extra flavor to it. I can't put pretty much anything involving pepper on any dish that I'm serving her. Actually, is that spicy? Just like pepper? She you have a like pepper, pepper grinder? Or, I have a pepper grinder. Have you tried to so, have you tried to trick her with white pepper to see if it's a mental thing? The literal flavor of pepper she doesn't particularly enjoy. <laughs> I tried. She, I tried. She actually used it as somewhat spicy. I tried to do a little, little, little flip it on her and try some white pepper and see if she caught it. So BJ, please explain why you're you're giggling at my my, my clarification there. And the reason why I clar- try to clarify, right, is because like traditional pepper that you get out of a little a little you know, canister is garbage. It's absolute garbage. Like there's 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 no spice to it. Um, it's 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 trash. You got to get a pepper grinder. You yeah. got to got to have that 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 peppercorn uh, freshly ground. In which case, it's got it's got something to it. It's got some 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 nice nice flavor yeah. to it. Otherwise. I, I, I like that you're on board. I think it was when uh, it was after Gra- uh, Grand Lennox um, when you guys were in, in Saluda. So uh, a bunch of you guys were living together and I decided that I was going to cook something and I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, and I was asking about the spices that you had and you sort of showed me, I would say a lackluster cabinet um, uh, of spices and I was I was just like you, like you just need to throw out this ground pepper it's garbage like I don't know why you haven't you're like what do you mean it, it's pepper it's fine and I was just like no it's unacceptable I'm gonna buy you a pepper grinder and this is what you're gonna have in your house and wherever it was we went I found a pepper grinder and I left it there and 
it, there was a lot of like, ah, I'm not, I'm not so sure about this, but I'm glad that, that there's been a, a full conversion to the uh, pepper grinding, pepper grinding people. hundred percent, hundred percent. It's, it's, it's something that um, pepper is, <laughs> is like tomatoes, right. In terms of like the, the difference of like fresh pepper. Um, Leave us go to. I just discovered like a genius, a genius frame for things. Um, so Spencer, thank you for this link. Uh, Terry, for the other link for the, the, the guy you were talking about, I think I've seen his cabin stuff. Um, I didn't know he had cooking stuff. And now I'm like, I'm super intrigued. I, I'm going to play all this crap all. His fried chicken one is, is like probably the most viewed and it looks, I mean, it, the way he does fried chicken looks really interesting. Um, I feel like there's the other one, the dude that, that builds stuff out of just, like completely primitive yeah uh, it's like primitive history or something like that isn't it yeah and and shows like how to start with basically absolutely nothing to building a fire making clay bricks and pretty much yeah, yeah he's he's he really yeah he <clears throat> he's an interesting cat um so what we talking about food oh spencer i want to answer your question um yes there is a condiment that i like that my wife doesn't like We've covered it, I think maybe on a whiskey on the weekends episode before. Mayonnaise. So Sarah does not like mayonnaise at all. Um, I sometimes can sneak it into like a chicken salad if the chicken yeah. salad's like a curry chicken salad that's on like bread. That's about it. And I love mayonnaise to the point that like as a kid, I would put it in chicken noodle soup. Uh, yeah. Um, Brie is the same yeah, way. With it's that. a very big difference. Yeah. I, I so Brie doesn't like mayonnaise? Nope. So that's like basically any side dish salad that is sort of endemic to Midwest and purchasing at a grocery store, the combination of mayonnaise and celery is like the bane of her, you know, uh, potluck existence. Uh, I mean, I, I understand where they're coming from. But I just find it personally baffling. Mayonnaise is just the go-to condiment for all so kinds good. of things. For me so up. good. I love mayonnaise. Um, so how do you feel about Miracle Whip? Yeah, so particularly like it. here's my thoughts on Miracle Whip. First of all, it's not a real rival. This is like the, the Carolina <laughs> NC State rivalry. It's not a real rival <laughs> when you beat the hell out of the other team all the time. Mayonnaise beats the hell out of Miracle Whip 10 out of 10. Here's But here's the issue, though, is that it, it ends up being a false choice. I don't dislike Miracle Whip. I can eat Miracle Whip. I can put it on stuff. I can put it on sandwiches. It's fine. Just don't tell me it's a rival for mayonnaise. I mean, of course, mayonnaise kicks its ass. That's That's my thought. I don't like Miracle Whip because I, I knew people growing up that didn't know any difference between Miracle Whip and mayonnaise. And I was like, hey, do you have any mayonnaise? And they'd bring out Miracle Whip and I'd spoon it on my sandwich without realizing it. And that's just a recipe for disappointment to go in thinking I've got mayonnaise and suddenly the flavor of Miracle Whip hits your mouth. Right. It's not Miracle bad, is, it's just not what I want. Miracle Whip is technically, is technically marketed as a salad dressing. And so if you've never had it before, like you, the, you know, the big, like seven layer salads is old yes. school Midwestern things. Miracle Whip, I think is a salad in that sort of salad dressing in that sort of sense. Um, and when you, when it's used that way, it's really good. I don't dislike it on a sandwich, but I mean, come on, mayo all the way, all the way. So Levi, you had a uh, food comparison that, that you wanted to go with, with cracked pepper, I think. Yeah. Tomatoes. I mean, tomatoes, tomatoes is, is my, is my go-to, um, but no, no, look, um, I, I just have been distracted by these links of of like guys making old old food. They're <laughs> like, awesome. They're great. <laughs> enjoy your next ten, enjoy your next ten hours, Levi. I mean, um, I, I was talking about earlier, but like I, I talking to the guy who like so Samantha is is what she calls in exile. Um, she is staying at her parents' place uh, because we've spent you know the past year entirely around each other with like no breaks. Uh, so she, she, she's relaxing there. I'm relaxing here. And yesterday I spent the time watching, um, the monster verse getting caught up there today. I'm going to get caught up on 16th to 18th century cooking. <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> That's on the docket. So, um, I was, uh, there was an episode of chef's table where there was a guy that basically only cooked with fire in, I think it was central or South America. I can't remember exactly where. Um, and I feel like Levi, this is like, this would also be one of your like really enjoyable go-tos because of like the production value of chef's table and just like how this guy does his thing is, is really entertaining. It's strong. Yeah. I mean, the thing that, that jumps out to me about these, these, these videos is, is that, you know, both of these guys are like 
the the right type of excited nerd in their own little area mm-hmm. that just is like endearing it's like i mean that'd be a rough hang like if if that was my friend like yeah hey look let's hang out this weekend and he's like yeah i'm, I'm actually uh i'm creating my own hand tools so i can build my cabin i'd be like okay well that's like a different type of hang than i was planning um but i'd appreciate it i'd appreciate the quirkiness and then the weird weird interest they have I would love to know what the how the primitive technology guy is when he's not on you know that remote section of his property learning how to make a brick kiln. It'd be very I'd be very curious to know how he is just in a normal business setting. He strikes me as the type of guy, this Townsend's guy, as the guy I want to know and like just be good enough friends with that I get the invite to the dinner party. Because I feel like he's doing like some interesting stuff. Like everybody come over and I've got made like the colonial feast. Which would be fascinating to me. I don't want to be the guy, but I want to like. It's almost like like a boat. Like I don't want to own a boat, but like I want to know. Yeah, I have a boat. friend that owns a boat. Yeah, same sort of deal. That's the best kind of boat, the one you don't have to maintain. But while we're while we're wrapping up the food discussion, so BJ, I mentioned that BJ is coming over. BJ and his girlfriend coming over for for dinner tonight. It's Easter dinner, and I am going to make a family recipe on my mom's side that's like super famous. Uh, it's my grandmother's cornbread recipe. My grandma made cornbread. She had Sunday dinner every Sunday after church. And I, growing up as a kid, would go over there every Sunday. And she she made cornbread like nine times out of mm-hmm. 10. And it's like by, it's far and the most famous thing my grandmother ever made for her family is the cornbread. I've never attempted to make it before. Today is the first day I've ever tried uh, to make my grandmother's cornbread recipe. Proper good cornbread is a really special thing. Good cornbread can make a table. Yeah, that's what I'm going to try to do today. Trying to make my grandma's cornbread. So we maybe the next time we can record, BJ can come on here and be like, meh, he was fine. <laughs> so um, Godspeed to you, Terry. Uh, as a person who for last uh, Thanksgiving, I tried to make my grandmother's uh, biscuits and I just just destroyed them. Like just like overmixed them and they... It, it, it didn't have that, 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 that light and fluffy um, texture. God bless you. You're probably going to, going to, going to achieve success because you're a good cook and I just follow recipes. Well, um, to be fair, you're biting off biscuits is a different animal than cornbread. I mean, yeah. Biscuits are much harder than cornbread for sure. I think things like that, you have to use a paring knife and cut into your hand. If you're making a grandmother's recipe, because there's no, like there is <laughs> no grandmother that I've ever, I've ever met that, that actually like used a normal cutting board oh. had like real knives. They just, they just cut stuff in their hands and it like it. Yeah. My grandma had that old it. school, like steak knife with the black handle mm-hmm. with the, it was written like the, with the ridges and she, yep. every, like she would peel everything toward her in her hand. Yep. Um, yeah. My grandmother would cut. I, I mean, so going back to the boiled uh, things like beets and, and potatoes. So there was a dish that she would make fairly often that for some, I have no idea why it was called vinaigrette, but it was, it was basically like a beet potato, beets, potatoes, pickles, some mayonnaise and some other like spices and stuff like that salad, um, which I hated when I was like five. But once I got to be an adult, I loved like everything was cut into her hand. And (laughs) it was just like this monster salad and just like, at this point, like, how did you, how have you not like, just cut your hands up? I think, um, I never saw my grandma cut her hand. Yeah, exactly. Crap. But I did retrain my mom. My mom learned from my grandma and she was, she always cut that way. And Mm -hmm. like, I I guess know it all me. I just, I busted it. And they're like, mom, you have to cut it. So now she actually does like the actual (laughs) chopping and cutting board. You know, she's gotten away from it, but my grandma's for sure never did it. I would never have tried to with my grandma either. Cause I could imagine me going in with a cutting board and a big knife trying to get her to, it would, no, Go no, sir. no sir son no get out of my kitchen um okay so before we wrap up i want to memorialize something since we're recording uh roy williams is no longer the coach of the north carolina basketball team this has obviously been very stressful for me i want to open it up for conversation i think i already know the answer for most of you guys but like we're all unc alum we met sensibly at unc i mean levi and i met before but we got better friends at unc this is a big deal for a lot of unc alumni how big a deal is it for you? And I'll start with Levi because I know the answer and then we'll, we'll rotate around to Spencer. Scale of one to 10 kind of thing. In terms yeah. Of one to 10 or just like any, any thought you like, did it, did it hit you at all? I mean, UNC's had four basketball coaches since like 1962. So it's kind of like a big deal in the UNC alumni community. Mm-hmm. 
I would say more so than like a chancellor, right? Like the, we've turned over chancellors and nobody's given a shit, right? But like new basketball coach, kind of a big deal. Um, Levi, you like basketball. Uh, fire away. I apologize in advance, Terry. Oh. <laughs> okay. I know the answer. The answer is I'm... a one. It, it, it doesn't matter. Like it, it, college sports, I'm, I'm just so out on college sports. Um, it's like saying that uh, Yale changed their their crew coach. It's like I don't. I mean, who cares? It just it holds no fascination with me, no interest. Um, I think you know. It, 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 it would it matter if we stole your coach? We took we took the, we took the president Brad Stevens. Would it matter then? We yanked him. <laughs> uh, at least Brad Stevens would call a timeout. Um, but better guard play. But I still love Roy. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm gonna be honest. I never really super loved Roy Williams when I was there. Like he, he was fine. He just, I, I thought he was just overrated as a coach. He, he, he was not flexible. He had a system which can work in college. Um, not many college, like college coaches, are actually legit good coaches, right? They have systems. They have, they have ways which they deploy stuff as opposed to being adaptable. Um, that's sort of a common theme amongst a lot of college coaches. Um. And so I wasn't super in on him, but it's, it, it's, it's a one, like, I, I just don't care. Um, but I want you to be happy. And, and I, and I know this matters a lot to you. Um, so it does indeed. And, and just, you know, just to, I mean, obviously refute what you said, Roy Williams has the third most wins in college basketball history. He did change uh, a lot in, in the number of three pointers, his team shot pretty good recruit, uh, developed boys into men. Um, definitely a great human being. Um, an alumni and ambassador for the yeah. university. So shout out Roy Williams. How do you um, feel about his uh, timeout strategy? Look, he, he, listen, better, better to make them look better, they, better. They learn how to deal with a run against Boston college in January than against uh, St. John's in March. That's what I say. So is that, is this, we're talking like an eight, nine, 10 for you? Oh, it's a, I mean, it's an 11 if possibly. I mean, like I like, I mean, my, I like sports, but I, my favorite thing that my, my sport world revolves around the Carolina basketball. Like I watch every single game. I follow recruiting. Like that's the most important thing to me is Carolina basketball. Um, I mean, I can go next. I, I guess it's of the few sports that I vaguely pay attention to, uh, like Carolina basketball is high up there. Um, like I will pay attention to the box score, sometimes watch some highlights, um, usually try and tune in for the Duke games. Um, I guess this is, this might be like the end of that for me. Um, because like, I don't keep up enough to keep up with the players. You know, I don't keep up enough. Like it's, I guess to me, it starts like, this is less of a rivalry and, you know, sort of in it because, you know, somewhat because of some of the different strategies that people employ uh, in terms of like how they play the game. And I feel a lot more divorced from the game since we were there. And, you know, this is probably like a bit of the last of the like vestiges of nostalgia for me, which is really like one of the only reasons that I actually kept up with, with UNC basketball. Probably that's probably um, a lot of alumni are that way, right? They probably remember the teams from when they were there. Maybe if you won a national championship when you were there, big deal. And then like, as the, those players matriculate out of the NBA uh, as your coach that was there when you were there leaves, like it all just kind of goes away. Like I get that. Yeah. And I think some of the, like, you know, I think the, maybe some of the ways that I could get pulled back in is, you know, if a player that I knew a bit more uh, came back as coach, but like, again, it's sort of like a, you know, what's bringing me to watch, to watch them play anymore. And, you know, obviously, you know, it's, it's dwindled since I was there, but um, I think Roy was one of the things that still brought me back for that nostalgia connection. Yeah. Spencer, like one of the biggest watchers of, of Carolina sports uh, on the pod. How do you feel? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, three out of 10 of where I thought it would be for you. It, it, this, this is in the category of things of where I was reading a newspaper and I saw this as a headline. I would stop and read that article of where it is. I've got enough of a history. I've got enough of people I know that are invested. I would feel a certain obligation to know about it, to be familiar with it, to have a certain base level of caring, if no, if no other purpose, but to support them of where it doesn't factor much in my radar and much my day-to-day, but it's part of enough of my heritage and my circle of friends that I would want to know about it. And I'd be interested to know about it because of how much I know it matters to them. 
Yeah. I mean, like the, obviously I don't, I mean, I don't like get mad or something like, I mean, it's cool. Like, I mean, it's not like you guys' thing. I just figured I'd bring it up. Cause like we talked a lot on the pod at various pods about being from UNC and meeting in the, at the university. Uh, and then they turn over their coach, which is like, you know, nationally, probably the biggest news that's come out of UNC since I, I you know, I don't know what, maybe the, the fake African-American class, studies classes. I, I don't know what would be a bigger story than the UNC basketball coach turning over, but it's big nationally. If you had, if you had to pick an emotion, would you say you are more excited or more nervous in terms of your reaction about what the future may bring? Uh, very like, like extremely like, Probably more like it would probably embarrass you guys how depressed I was when I first heard it. There you are. Like really upset. Like, cause I like, I really like Roy Williams and I've grown to really like him over the time he's become a, and like I'm my, I, I'm at a higher point of affinity for Roy Williams now than I've ever been. And that was before, like, that was like before the announcement, like my, my like of him has just grown over the years and appreciation for him. And so I got really like sort of sad and depressed about it. Um, Still kind of working my way out of that. I'm not super, I think it's going to be Hubert Davis. And I don't, I think he's going to be like a good recruit, bad in-game coach, like a lot of college coaches are. And that's going to like, I mean, I understand Roy Williams had his problems, but he still was a pretty good in-game coach for college coaches. I think Hubert Davis isn't going to be as good. Um, There's an outside chance it's going to be Wes Miller, which I think would be pretty cool. He coaches (laughs) at UNC Greensboro right now. And uh, has brought the UNC Greensboro to the, cha- to the tournament a couple of times, had multiple 21 seasons. He's really, he's a really good coach. Problem with him is he's really young. Um, but apparently they're the, the AD Bubba Cunningham is getting Kenny, Kenny Smith, Kenny, the jet Smith and Michael Jordan to weigh in on, on this, on this coaching search. And if that's the case, it's going to be Hubert Davis. So we might as well just like accept that it's going to be Hubert Davis. Um, not super excited about that. I think what's going to, I think for the next couple of years, I'm going to still be into it. But I'm going to be like one of those like old heads, like, oh, man, I remember when Roy was here. It was so much better, uh, you know, like, like that sort of deal. So as PJ said, this is kind of your nostalgia point. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be tough for me, for sure. And, like, I guess my I'm wearing gut, the hat today to rip it. Yeah, my gut feeling and like I have no basis of knowledge for this, but like I feel like this is where UNC could very well fall off of the like getting those uh mcdonald's all-american stars and and just fall off of that because like i don't think that's going to be the case i still think we're going to get like good recruit hubert davis is a that like that his strength is like in recruiting like most yeah. of the guys that we have now hubert davis recruited roy wasn't like low-key roy wasn't a great recruiter like anymore like he's a terrible white man who would yeah. show up yeah. and be like you're not going to play till you're a junior like it, nobody wanted to hear that um yeah. so hubert davis is a great recruiter now the the one thing they're talking about the scuttlebutt levi that might get you a little intrigued is that if Hubert Davis gets hired, one of his apparently he's told his folks he wants to get Rasheed Wallace on the on the staff. Now that would be that would be great to have Sheed as an assistant so coach. I, the, I, he, yes, he's going to get technical fouls. Yes, he's going to throw clipboards, uh, but he's also a great basketball mind. So I, there was an article that some uh, I think it was keeping it here. It was some UNC like uh, probably student reporter writing it, but there was a really funny like. I want to see uh, Rashid Wallace like kiss a player on the head as he's like taken off the or, or you're, at the end of a game or like taken out after a couple of fouls and and, and just have that like Roy moment of, of like, you know, you did a good job, you know, you know, go sit on the bench. We're going to, you know, put you back in later, maybe. I think she's like be a, a great, a great assistant coach. He'd probably help with recruiting a lot because he's really popular uh, among younger folks. Um <laughs> He, he would be good. I, I I think Hubert Davis is going to require a good staff if he's going to continue to BJ to your point. If, 100%. If, you, if Carolina basketball is going to continue being a thing that we all like know about is really good mm-hmm. and is in the national conversation top five every year, Hubert Davis is going to need a lot of help. So if he gets hired, then then the, the next story is, all right, who who's the assistant coaches? And then the story becomes like, does is Roy going to do the Dean Smith thing? Because when Dean Smith retired, he kept an office in the Dean Dome. He went to practices like Every other practice, he gave his notes. He helped recruit. He was still very relevant to the program. It's unclear yeah. if Roy's going to do that. Like Roy has a lot of interest outside basketball, i.e., golfing and gambling. So he's probably going to like just like live in Vegas. I don't know, but it would be nice if he was still around the program. I was going to say, apparently, he shot some pretty good golf games. Uh, you know, right after his retirement, he broke ninety on Augusta when Augusta, Augusta was prepared for the Masters. It was pretty impressive. Two fake knees. Shout out Roy. Late question as well. I'm looking back through the history because I actually don't know as much about the history of 
UNC basketball really before I became part of it. Um, but after Dean Smith left, we had two other coaches, Bill Guthridge and Matt Doherty, each had three seasons each before they were dropped and we got Roy. So Matt, is, Bill Guthridge was not dropped. Bill Guthridge was always going to be a bridge. Mm-hmm. He was an old guy. He was Dean Smith's assistant, and he was always going to be a bridge to the next. The problem is Dean Smith had prepared this. Probably more information you guys want to know, but Dean Smith had he had a, he had prepared his exit plan, and his exit plan was Bill Guthridge for three years, then Phil Ford. Phil Ford had uh, well publicized problems with alcohol and had to basically drop out of any contention for ever being a head coach. Um, so then it became, well, what do we do? And they hired Matt Doherty, who was absolutely great recruiter, absolutely not ready to be, run the program. And I told you the story about how Dean Smith had a office in the Dean Dome. Matt Doherty took over and very publicly and very infamously now moved Dean Smith's office out of the Dean Dome. He moved Dean Smith's office out of the Dean Dome and said, I need to, I need to run the program on my own. I can't have the old guy over my shoulder all the time. He lasted three years and he was kicked out. It, would, would you consider three years probably a reasonable prediction of if the new coach does not work out, that's how long they'd keep him on before they drop him? That's a really good question. I think they would keep you. I think if it's Hubert Davis, I think he'd have a longer leash. Cause he's, that's, that's my curiosity. Cause Hubert Davis was like, he played Carolina. He was a star. He was drafted in the NBA, he played in the NBA, he was assistant coach in the NBA. Like he's, he was on college game day before he became an assistant coach at Carolina. Like he's a very well-known national entity. Um, even though he doesn't have a lot of head co- any head coaching experience, I don't think they'd only give him three years. I think he'd have a longer leash. If they hire Wes Miller and Wes Miller comes out and has like a 10 and 15 season. Yeah. Maybe they, maybe they dump him after three years. He, he wouldn't have as long a leash. I wouldn't think if we get the president, Brad Stevens, uh, as long a leash as you want, don't worry about it. It's all good. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so Spencer, I mean, three years is like the respectable length, right. Of, of we'll, we'll give it an honest effort year one. You got to, got to bring in your players year two, you're developing them year three. You better show some promise. Uh, if yeah. not, then get the hell out. Um, but, but it'd be more towards, um, we're giving you a heads up that we're planning on letting you go as opposed to like uh, the, the traditional HR uh, you're, you're being let go. You need to clear stuff up in 30 minutes. So sort of conversation. Um, I mean, we've only fired one coach in UNC basketball history and that was Matt Doherty and he went eight and 20. So like, I mean, you gotta, that, that's, I mean, like that's terrible. Like that's really, really bad. Yeah, but he's he's the reason why we have a championship in 2005, but okay. Based purely on performance. Roy, Roy made a men, Levi, boys to men, made, making boys to men, making people grow. Based purely on performance, not any outside factors or behavior issues or situations with players. Based purely on performance, is three seasons the fastest we would let a coach go? Um. So, I mean, so outside of like, like so, like they let Phil Ford go when he like had a DUI and blew like point two. Purely based on what exactly. the record was. So, so I'm just saying, like there is some precedent for letting guys go for disciplinary actions like that. Um, I don't think we. I mean, of all the names they're kicking around, so Steve Robinson or Hubert Davis, both assistant coaches, Wes Miller. Some people say Jerry Stackhouse, but he's he's shit the bed over in Vanderbilt. Um, you know, maybe an NBA coach, maybe, maybe Billy Donovan or, or Brad Stevens. I don't think any of those guys would get less than three years. And most of them would probably get four or more. I mean, I think they more, yeah. more than three. Yeah. yeah. Um, because these, these are, I mean, we're talking about known entities, all these guys that we're talking about. I mean, even Wes Miller, he's probably like the least known entity of the group. I mean, has still taken you and I mean, fucking UNC Greensboro to the NCAA tournament and has won games. Like, he's pretty impressive and he's like the lowest of that of that group as far as a national brand uh so spencer there is a conceivable scenario where they they bring in a a person and and the person is let go before three years but it would be very unlikely that would happen right you'd have to have the 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 bottom drop out for recruiting performance fall off a map and there's no upside right like it, it has to be Worst case, and, and to, to Terry's point, their floor is already pretty successful, so it's it's highly unlikely to happen. But yeah, I mean, someone could, could come in, get no one that has greater than three stars, um, and uh, have no hope of recovery. Piss off their entire uh, assistant uh, staff, and they all you know leave. So we've got no no pipeline of of talent, and he's not making you know not getting wins on the court. That could happen. It's so improbable that it's not even worth considering. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, BJ, I, I think that your concern is a concern that a lot of folks have like, okay, well, if Roy turns over and they get some money and they're not good, maybe UNC basketball, like won't be a thing, but then, I mean, UNC like recruits itself. I mean, there's a lot of times where like five-star players contact the program and say, I want to go there. Like, I mean, that's, 
that's kind of what blue like Duke gets that treatment. UNC, Kentucky, Kansas. That's pretty much about it. Um, UCLA. Sometimes UCLA uh, will get mostly it. places. But that's that have that's the, the kind of that's colors. the kind of um, yeah. It kind of recruits itself a little bit, right? So I still think UNC is going to be good, and and they're like to leave out his point. Their floor is is like maybe like first round of the NCAA tournament. Maybe like what happened this year is probably their floor. Yeah. Um, but I, mean, I, I guess I don't see. I don't think my personal opinion is I don't think of the names they're talking about. Yeah. Whoever they hire, no one's going to be a disaster. I don't think it'll be a disaster, and I don't think it'll yeah. be like a three years Matt Doherty kick them out type situation. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. There's almost no chance, BJ, to your point that 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 you know UNC will go the way of Nebraska football in terms of they had a heyday and they they fall Very off the map. Good comparison. Eva. That's yeah. that's unlikely to happen. Um, that's just so unlikely to, to happen because it is such a name or an institution and and they. It's part of the blue bloods, as, as you pointed out, there are a lot of teams, especially at blue in their color scheme. But I mean, the UNC's, the, the, the Dukes after Coach K built them up. Um, we'll see what happens when there's transition plans. So their provisional yeah. status, because they don't have this history, but UNC, Kansas, Kentucky, UCLA, um, there's always a, a way to, to get better there. There's always a way to, to go to, to a high level. They can mm-hmm. fall off. Like UCLA has had a lot of, lot of lean years. That's what but, I was going to ask, because UCLA had like a heyday but they still, they're still can, pretty well represented. But you can build that program up, right? They have, yeah. they have this sort of resonance of a school that is worth going to, worth considering, that you can tap into if you're good. It, yeah. could, it could go south, but it, there's a reason why these, these teams keep, keep popping back up. And the reason is because is they have such a tradition. They have such a, to Terry's point, they recruit themselves, either because they have a huge population of, of basketball players like, you know, Southern California, um, mm-hmm. or because they're just an institution and there's so many boosters with so much money that it's going to be taken care of in the case of the Kansas and, and, and Kentucky. Um, well, I will give, I'll give this, I'll give Duke some credit here is that Roy did everything. Roy was working like 90 hour a week. He did the whole thing. And so like, there's this huge, like there's this huge hole now in the program of like, but like coach K has really over the years restructured that program to where his assistant coaches do uh, like way, way more than Roy's assistant coaches did. So I think like the, the transition plan for, for Duke is probably going to be better and, and much more smooth than what we're going to see at UNC. Cause I mean, he's got, he's got those guys ready. Like, I mean, uh, I think it's John Shire. I think is the guy he's thinking will be next. And like, they they do all the work. I mean, even like in-game interviews and shit coach can't even do that anymore like assistant coaches do all that stuff so they're probably better positioned than carolina to transition away from that iconic coach they're better positioned to transition in terms of a of an infrastructure headcount responsibilities that sort of standpoint my point there though is that duke we think of duke as, as an elite basketball program but before what 1982 oh they were they were nothing there yeah, there were zeros so they yeah. could fall off a cliff it'll, it'll take a while but there's there's a scenario where in 25 years, Duke is nothing again. Um, but UNC was big even before we had Frank McGuire before. Yep. Before Dean Smith and Frank McGuire ended up coaching the Lakers. Like, I mean, like, you know, so we had some big names before even Dean Smith. That's a good point, Levi. Duke, Duke has really been the Coach K show, whereas UNC has been a brand beyond Roy Williams or even Dean Smith. All right, guys. Well, thank you for for humoring me and having that conversation. I'm still I need it's a cathartic thing for me. I'm still like uh, going through some some therapy here on the on the Roy Williams exit from from UNC. We're here for you, man. Anything else we want to cover? I think that's good. It's been fun, y'all. Yeah, good conversation. Enjoy talking to you guys.